Living the Dream acknowledges the traditional owners of the land it is recorded on, especially the Jagera and Turrbal peoples, elders past, present and future, and their continuing struggles for justice and self-determination. Don't, don't you think there's like a kind of cultural cringe on the left about disco? Living the Dream is an irregularly published anti-capitalist podcast from Brisbane. Hi, this is Dave and you're listening to Living the Dream. Just before we get into our proper episode, I just wanted to give you a heads up and let you know that John and I are trying to raise some cash to buy some more equipment. So I'm not sure if you've noticed or not, but basically we record our podcasts by yelling into the tiny microphone on our laptops. And what we'd like is... um, decent quality USB microphones and a handheld Zoom recorder to both improve our audio quality and also give us a little bit more mobility so we can make some more shows on the run. Uh, We'd appreciate any money you could throw our way. We've got some kind of rewards as well. If you're interested in helping us out, you can go to possible.com slash project slash make hyphen living hyphen the hyphen dream hyphen dreamier Um, anything that you can give us would make a big impact and will allow us to keep on making these shows and hopefully do so in a way where we are both more audible and the physical pain caused by listening to our show lessons anyway hope you're having a lovely day thanks for your help hello you are listening to living the dream and today you're joined by me dave and john how you doing yeah, I'm good. How are you, Dave? Excellent. Excellent. I'm pretty excited because we have a special guest today. We have a Sydney-based psychiatrist, blogger, and no-good Nick, Tad Titsa. How are you, Tad? Great, thanks. Great to be on your show. Yeah, we're very... Finally. <laughs> finally. Well, it's all, I'm, I'm really excited to have you on. Like, I assume our listeners probably know you from your writings at... Um, at left flank in particular and your theorization of anti-politics so if if people um haven't already found you where would they find you on twitter uh it's um at dr underscore tad dr tad okay and john where are you at john pacini and i'm at with sober census and the thing i forgot in the introduction was to say that you're a disco obsessive as well Yes, it's uh, disco, electronic music. I even do some, like, uh, writing about it. Really? Where do you do your writing about music? Um, More recently, I've just been writing reviews for a website called Resident Advisor. Okay, cool. And most of Which anyone who... You keep on going down. Anyone who's into that kind of music will know what that is. Excellent. (laughs) And, And people who want to find your main political work, that can be found at Left Flank. Is that correct? That, that's right. Though the, the blog, for a variety of reasons, has been relatively dormant for the last year. Mm-hmm. And you're, you're currently working on a book on anti-politics with Verso as well. That, that's right, um, with a working title, uh, The Great Derangement. Okay, excellent. Ooh. And the, I guess what's important to mention too is this concept of anti-politics you've been uh, fleshing out and theorising with Elizabeth Humphreys, who's also been on this show before and is a friend of the show too. Yes. Uh, look, yes. Tad, like Tad, I guess John and I have wanted to get you on the show for a while, and one of the reasons is, I guess, John, we are probably have assimilated the concept of anti-politics in a soft way, I guess, into our theorization of the present. 
So I think yep. maybe some of the kind of endor- like some of our sympathies to some projects would probably sit outside of sympathies you've got, Tad, particularly the, the um, way that we've been relatively sympathetic with the electoral turn um, amongst comrades in the South Brisbane mm. Greens, and we can kind of mm. flesh that out. But I was thinking as a way of kind of introducing this, like the notion of anti-politics is one of the few new forms of attempting to theorise our condition that's come out of, of popular Australian Marxism in my memory. I can't think of any other one. Like, yeah, uh, I guess that's the case. Um, uh, I guess Elizabeth and I have been theorising this for a number of years, going back to 2013, but um, I have to give credit where it's due, which is that um, the concept really came up first in another popular Marxist forum, though I'm sure the person who writes the blog would hate me calling them a Marxist, but the Piping Shrikes blog was where I first really came across the idea. And um, I think uh, the Piping Shrikes work on uh, the Rudd Labor government um, was pretty breakthrough stuff, and um, I think we all uh, owe a debt of gratitude to that anonymous blogger. Could you run us through basically what they were saying about the Rudd government? Uh, <clears throat> yeah, so it was actually that their writing started um, prior to that um, when Rudd became opposition leader, and I think the really the the thing that struck me was that here was an explanation of why Rudd, who was not um, politically radical in any way, like he wasn't an extreme social progressive or anything like that, uh, could suddenly have such a breakthrough in terms of the popularity of the of the Labor Party. And uh, I guess piping Shrike's analysis and this is just this oversimplification was that Rudd posed himself as being against the old power structures, the factional and union power structures of the Labor Party, and this allowed him to break with the complete impasse of Laborist politics. Uh, after all, they only actually outright won one election between 1993 and the present, and that was Rudd's, um, uh, Rudd's big win in 2007. Um, mm. Of course, Gillard um, only scraped through with the minority government after that. So, yeah, yeah, that's that's kind of where I was first exposed to this at a time when I was trying to figure out how the hell is it that the Labor Party has had this amazing resurgence in popularity? It's hard to yeah. remember that it actually happened under Rudd, right? Mm. Well, I think there's, there's a culture of forgetting, which is uh, now that what happened with Rudd in 2010, where his popularity collapsed, is now read back onto his entire time as leader. And I think yeah, what that's we, a good point. Sorry, John, did I, I didn't mean to interrupt you there. No, 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 I was just saying that that's a, that that's a good point. Yeah, you have to you think about Rudd and you think about, like, the disaster. Sort of like how when you think about Mark Latham, or you can think about him, like, frothing at the mouth mm, yeah. in a backyard. Since you and Liz have promoted this idea, the reaction has mm. largely been one of either confusion or hostility, as if, you know, the, mm. the critique of politics seems to threaten the radical left project. And so people have been either fairly hostile to it or have mischaracterised it. Would you say that's accurate? Yeah, I think, well, I think the people who are the most hostile have correctly characterised it, as in it really is a challenge. It's not just a challenge to official electoral politics that the radical left is always down on. Uh, 
it's actually a challenge to the practice of politics itself. Yeah. Okay. So it, it extends beyond there. So it's actually the implication of anti-politics is then is most of what we call left activity is either useless or harmful or irrelevant. I don't think useless, harmful and irrelevant are the key words to use. It's to recognise uh, that politics uh, detached from um, what's happening in society really um, it has its own logic and that logic is not the logic of what traditionally the radical left has been about, which is you know, complete transformation of society. Okay. Mm. Well, so when you were, you know, were kind of struck by this idea that the piping strike, this anonymous blogger, was, was exploring about the Rudd government, what were the kind of phenomena mm. that was going on that propelled you to kind of use anti-politics to understand what was happening? Um, well, I, I think I came, I mean, me, me personally, um, uh, I started to dabble with this really because I had an idea which was common on the radical left that this period of neoliberalism that we're allegedly living through has created a political polarisation, a sort of a flight to the extremes um, where where the society, not just politics, but society is far more polarised between left and right and um you know, that people can turn to extreme right or extreme left rejections of the existing neoliberal sort of mainstream consensus. Um, and that really, when, when Left Flank started, one of my first posts actually says that and mixes it up with a whole discussion, this is about 2010, a whole discussion of anti-politics as well. So it took me a very long time to really grapple with what anti-politics really meant Um and it also forced, I think, over time, that analysis of this flight to the extremes, the more I looked empirically at what was happening, the more uh, outrageously stupid that, that assertion was. And yet it's commonplace on the left that this polarisation is occurring and really the left can take advantage of it if it positions itself radically correctly, hmm. just like the right does elsewhere. So the, is this, this narrative the one that's talking about, like, the rise of Pauline Hanson, the rise of Trump? you know, the rise of Jeremy Corbyn as all, all examples of this polarisation. Yes, and, and the implication being not just that there are parties with relatively more extreme programs at either pole um, who are getting more votes, but the implication is that there's, there's a shift in society that is driving this or that is connected to this, that the population itself is moving in these directions away from the centre as well. And I think empirically, uh, in every single rich capitalist country that I have looked at, social attitudes, data, everything else like that would indicate that, there really is no evidence for this at all. No serious evidence. So you're saying that there's not this polarisation that's happening? So if when the I... Polarise, there is... Yeah, sorry. No, because when I jump on social media, I constantly get a narrative mm. that the right is rising, that there's, yes. an, in, you know, a kind of looming threat of fascism that's, yep. that's, you know, and there's multiple different phenomena that people present as evidence of that. But in, in Australia, yep. let's say Pauline Hanson, you know, etc. are you saying that's totally. not the case? I'm saying that in terms of uh, anything that we would understand historically as the rise of the right, 
um, is not happening. And I guess the, the anti-politics helps um, perhaps instead of talking about anti-politics, uh, that anti-politics leads you to analysis that forces you to look at forces you to look at what's happening socially. So what's happening in society? And so the question then becomes, is uh, the rise of right-wing parties electorally um, today, does it represent the same thing socially that it represented, let's say, in the interwar period? Mm. And empirically, I think the answer has to be no. In fact, most of the people who really want to push this analysis that fascism is on the rise want to say that now fascism, unlike in the interwar period, can rely on having pretty much no social base whatsoever. Um, certainly many people make that claim that simply by getting votes, uh, it, somehow, you know, the populace can be turned towards these parties when all the other evidence, such as social attitudes data, uh, the fact that people then swing to other parties and so on, there is no sort of consistent move of masses of people into active participation in far-right politics. I guess what there are, might be useful yeah, as well yeah. is now is when we're talking about society we're talking about social base and whatever is to get to some of this when you're talking about anti-politics you're talking about an idea of politics and an idea of society that might require some explanation um for listeners yeah. i guess in terms of the way that you think about them particularly in terms of the way that you've been reading marx which i find really interesting so do you want to kind of just go over that sort of briefly yeah sure uh, i think um uh, i think uh it's particularly set out in some of Marx's early writings, which are not particularly hidden from public view. They're, I mean, I, I can take everything I say from the Penguin edition of the early writings, so it's hardly an obscure text. Those, though some of these writings were not available, um, they, were, they were not printed in Marx's lifetime and were only subsequently printed in the 20th century. Um, and I think the argument Marx puts following on a, a whole bunch of class, sort of more classical early liberal bourgeois thinkers, um, people like Hobbes and uh, right up to Hegel, who he particularly um, uh, runs a critique of. Um, Marx sees modern society, which I guess is a synonym for capitalist society, as having a very distinct and separate civil society where private relations between people occur and a state that is very separate from that, that sort of stands over that society and administers that society, but that the political sphere or the old, the old term that they used to use was political society, which involved politicians, bureaucrats and so on, all sort of centering their activity around the functions of the state or competing to, you know, um, influence the state and so on, is seen as quite separate from civil society, which is about private relations between between individuals. And so I think that distinction is a really important distinction um, that Marx continues on, but he, he, he basically comes up with a, a significant insight that if bourgeois society is characterised by competition between individuals, that we're in a, what Hobbes called a war of all against all, we're always competing with each other, then if a state stands above all these particular competing interests between individuals and tries to represent the general interest of society, you can't actually do that because there is no general interest if all the individual interests are competing. And so it has to stand, therefore, as having its own particular interest in relation to all these other competing interests. And therefore, it's in competition with society as much as those things, uh, those interests are in competition with each other. So there's an alienation of the state from civil society, which is based on the alienation of civil society itself. 
That's, that's Max's schema. That's very theoretical. I apologise for that. No, no, no. I, I, I actually, I actually think it's really, really fascinating because look, I've got to say one of the things that I have struggled with with anti-politics is in my head trying to get straight like what the relationship is between the dynamics of capital accumulation, the state, and politics. Mm. Because I understand that here, state and politics are not used as interchangeable terms. Hmm. Yeah, so I think the uh, I, I think what Marx is saying because he puts society first. He criticizes Hegel for essentially saying that society flows from the state. He says Hegel accepts that he says that basically capitalist society looks like that. That really the state's in charge and society is under the control of the state and politics. But he says this this is how society appears to us. That there's a like a fetishized or inverted. Uh, form of appearance. And he criticizes Hegel not for turning things upside down and, you know, saying the state is, is the primary thing and society is secondary. He says Hegel uncritically accepts the way society presents itself to us, mm. which looks to us, appears to us that the state is in charge and society is secondary. And uh, he says actually you have to get beneath this and recognize that the essence of the, of the issue is that society comes first. So I think Marx, through all his writings, and that's why he writes a book about, you know, multiple books about capital, is he's then trying to, and as he puts it, anatomize civil society. He wants to, he wants to um, draw the anatomy of civil society because he says that is the basis for politics, the law, st the state, and so on. And though, all those things, whilst they're not all synonymous, they are all kind of part of this sphere, this alienated sphere which is produced by this society of alienated relations. And so I think capital accumulation is an alienated or fetishized process, and so th that then creates um, necessarily uh, an, a society that's alienated against itself, and therefore the state that stands above that cannot help but be alienated from that society mm. and, and have interests antagonistic that society, even though Marx points out that actually that state depends on capital accumulation, depends on those private relations continuing for its own existence, so it can't wipe away those capital, uh, those capitalist relations because then that would be committing suicide. It'd be taking away the very basis for its own, you know, antagonistic existence in relation to them. So um, yeah, oh, this is this is totally fascinating. Like and it, like the. It sets two reactions in my mind straight away. Like the first is normally if you say what's, what's a Marxian theory of the state, the starting point for people is that line from the manifesto, the executive committee of the bourgeoisie or whatever it is exactly. And then how does this fit with that journey of the 20th century when the, kind of the state, I guess, expands across the social territory with the development of mm. the welfare state or biopolitics mm. or however you want to understand it. So, like, I, sure. like, I don't think there's a problem being uh, theoretical about this because uh, I actually think this is not something that's discussed enough in Australia at the moment is actually, mm. you know, really attempting to understand the operation of, of the forces in our concrete situation. Mm. Yeah. Um, so, uh, look, I, I want to go back to the manifesto. The quote, the closer wording that I can remember is that the state is uh, is the um, uh, executive committee for the management of the common affairs of the bourgeoisie. Mm, yeah. And so that's actually a little bit different. 
Mm. It's actually saying here's, here's this kind of body that's trying to administer the common affairs of the bourgeoisie, um, which is consistent with other things that Marx writes in his early writings about the state trying to administer these competing social relations and these alienated social relations, administering them, but it can't overturn them. So, so that's um, different from seeing yeah. the state as like a tool that like the hand of the bourgeoisie picks up and whacks workers Absolutely. in cloth caps over the head with. Absolutely. And and I don't think, I mean, I know people, some theorists, especially those who want to reject the early writings um, uh, or, you know, sort of dismiss them or minimise them, want to say that Marx had this kind of, I guess, instrumental view of the state, that it was just, you know, a tool in the hands of the bourgeoisie. But uh, I find it hard to find that in Marx's writings. You do find concrete historical examples where certain social groups or certain fractions of the bourgeoisie are seen to be actually trying to run the state themselves. But that doesn't change, I don't think, Marx's overall um, conception um, I, you know, in the first draft of the, of his writings on the, the Paris Commune, he calls the state this supernaturalist abortion of society. So he's still, yeah. despite describing concretely, it's a great, it's great, isn't it? Yeah. <laughs> um, so uh, despite describing concretely all these different fractions of capital and, and different social groups trying to influence the state or run the state at various times, the overall uh, analysis, I don't think, really changes much from those from that early critique of Hegel in, you know, that early period, eighteen forty-two to seven. That, that's really fascinating. Um, so, 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 you, so, yeah. So, the, if you want me to answer the about the welfare state, because that is, I mean, that's that's the bit that worries everyone, doesn't it? Mm. Well, because um, when we met Tad decades ago, yeah. we were in a left that would have seen its primary tool as the defence of the welfare state even though we didn't yes. use the term neoliberalism at the time in in the yeah. 90s, like that's essentially what the activity of the left was, was the defence yeah. of the state. Yes, and particularly because that Thatcherite um, period was one of retrenchment of certain sectors of the welfare state uh, alongside attacks on trade unions and workers' organisations and so yeah. on. And, and, um, and, even but, na- and even now, you know, friends and comrades, like, both within and outside the Greens and people looking to Jeremy Corbyn are talking about the nationalisation of electricity as yes. a radical demand, which you know, does not mean the communisation of power generation. It means mm. placing electricity in the state's hands. Yeah. Look, I think, um, I think the, the issue with the state, uh, so, so at one level I think the issue of questions of welfare and so on, uh, I, I think that really having a social kind of critique should lead you to say, well, are someone's social interests being affected by whatever change is happening? So, for example, are unemployed people getting thrown off, you know, meagre benefits and starving in the streets? We're against that. We're against the um, attack on the social interests of those people. And I think that's the way to pose the demand. I think mostly the left now poses the demand in terms of very clever things about how the state could be restructured to make these things happen, a universal basic income, all these exciting and amazing state schemes to um, ameliorate the the conditions of capitalism. It's not to say that we should oppose ameliorating bad social conditions. Um, It's to say we should start and end with people's social interests and not getting caught up in the game of, well, how are we going to get the state to do that? 
what clever things can we do to make the state run that way? Mm. It's a demand about people's social interests. Um, and, you know, when workers go on strike or whatever, that's what they're doing. They're directly demanding their own social interests um, in, in that situation. So I think it's analogous to that. But I think the second thing to say is that uh, capitalism is not what it was in its kind of early days and when even at Marx's death when there was certainly, you know, economic development and imperialism and so on, there was a kind of expansionary capitalism. But really since the Great Depression, the state has played more and more of a role in propping up what goes on in capitalism. So mm-hmm. I guess I guess cap- capital and individuals, even ordinary individuals, have a much more um, kind of dependent relationship on the state. That doesn't stop that essential relationship being uh, an alienated one. Um, so, so I think by posing it in terms of social interests, you get around this, oh, well, how are we going to figure out how to run the state better? One thing well, that's I, interesting, what, thinking about all of that, Tad, when I'm thinking about, we've talked about how Marx presents the state as the ruling body of the bourgeoisie, but then equally, on the other hand, the way that the left often considers the state is that we want to use the state as something that's called the dictatorship of the proletariat, right? Mm-hmm. So then what does that mean? So if the state is an abstracted, alienated relationship, um, mm. expresses the alienated relationship of society, what, what, how then are we to appropriately think about this concept of the dictatorship of the proletariat, this problem of transition? Maybe this is getting a little bit too abstract for everyone, but I just thought it would be useful because that's, I guess there's that, there's that kind of bipartite sort of way that people think about the state. Yeah. Look, I guess, I guess, um, I take my cue from um, one of those early writings, which was published in Marx's lifetime, his account of the Silesian Weavers' Revolt, which was, I think, one of the first places he really sees the working class as a potentially powerful social force in a very concrete way. And mm. he talks he talks about that there's social revolution and political revolution and that every social revolution has to have a political edge. But... I think he poses it very much in, in a negative sense that the organization of, 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 you know, those actors in civil society, the working class or whatever, that its relationship to politics has to be a negative relationship, that it's, that its mm. political intervention is not about propping up politics, but about, but about actually getting rid of it. So I kind of see the, tra- the dictatorship of the proletariat stuff very much as the transitional thing that breaks down the old state. Um, and gets rid of it as quickly as possible, and so that so that actually society can move forward. Um, I I don't think it's a thing that goes on for years and years and years, and you know takes on its own life. Because if it's that, then you're just going to recreate some other kind of alienated state form. Because the idea is really the Marx way that Marx puts it is the idea is that you want to remove the distinction between society and politics, right? You want to dissolve politics back into society almost reabsorption reabsorption yeah that's the term yeah as an as an effect of of breaking down all the fetishes fetishisms of human labor you know like Mm. like one of the um, yes like one it's quite interesting like before uh yourself and liz using the term anti-politics the other i'd encountered it in a couple of other spaces and one of them and i'm not sure if you're aware of this one of them was in the work of people like john holloway whose engagement yes. with, the, with the state derivation debate has a yes. pretty comes up with a pretty similar analysis you know but interestingly like drawing on not the early works of marx but attempting to theorize a notion of the state coming from a reading of marx in capital 
which is going, mm. you know, and you know, not to bore people too much, but the very simple thing is to understand the state as a, a product of the fetishized relations that come out of the commodity form, yada yada, and politics yes. is an aspect of that fetishized life. Therefore, if the point is to abolish the commodity form, everything that kind of hangs around on top of that has to go too, and that um, yes. struggles through that through those forms are therefore just. Um, <laughs> you know, struggles in alienated forms that point in the wrong direction. Sure. So, so like, I mean, right up to that last bit, I'm very sympathetic to what Holloway says, mm. but I think the mistake he makes is that, uh, or at least, you know, like I think reading early Marx is useful because Marx really does talk about um, the need to have this negative approach really mm. to the state and to politics, which is not... Um, I mean, I've read a couple of Holloway books and some of his earlier articles, and I really get a sense of him wanting to uh, avoid the question of what you do about the state. Um, like, it's almost like the other stuff you do will eventually deal with this question. But uh, I, I think the, when we look at it today, um, the state more and more is poking into all kinds of places in people's lives and in society. Um, like, I think he would the, say you leave it. You know, like in like as in just you, you I think as in, like yeah, you turn away and you do other things. Yeah, whereas whereas I, I think there's no way to turn away. I, I think you know even when it comes down to uh, you know a question of I mean any question that comes up really um, whether or not you can in Sydney you can drink and party beyond three a.m. Um, the mm. state is there to say no. The state is always hanging around and doing that. And in some ways, the more dependent you know, the functioning of, you know, old capitalism is on the state intervening in various ways, the more likely it is that the state is going to poke poke around and and the last thing it wants to do is commit suicide. Those people, politicos, have a whole existence and life around this organism. They don't want it to go away. Um, I mean, I had a, 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 a disheartening debate with a, someone from a revolutionary Marxist group in the United States who talked about, well, of course, smashing the state is what we want to do, but, of course, we wouldn't smash the Environmental Protection Agency because, like, it's a good part of the state. So that's in, these that's, kinds of arguments... That's kind of incoherent, right? Like, because the, the very presence what? of the Environmental Protection Agency suggests that there's private capital to regulate. Uh, or, or people to regulate. Yeah. Even individuals to regulate. Yeah, Which I think, I think most revolutionary Marxists now are kind of see themselves as a political class in waiting for the worker state. All ready to regulate people. Look, look I guess um, maybe we should divert slightly. And I think it's yes. in, your, in your and Liz's article in Oxford Left Review, I think it's mm. this one, you identify anti-politics referring to four separate but interrelated phenomena. Three. Three. Oh, my goodness. Three. Okay. You can add a fourth one. You can add a fourth one if you want to. I, I prefer not to. It gets too confusing. Yeah, so when Liz and I sat down, the funny thing is Liz and I sat down and, and finally put this together in one place because of Russell Brand because, of course, mm. he, he had that famous interview um, where he basically shellacked the British political class and millions of people looked at it on YouTube and it really resonated with people, though the radical left was strangely uncomfortable with it. Um, 
And so we, we were on, actually on holiday in the UK at the time. So we sat down and, and set this out. And uh, we thought about anti-politics isn't just one thing. And um, I think the first, the most obvious thing it is, the first of these three interrelated but different things, is that it's a kind of a general mood uh, or feeling in society or attitude in, in civil society uh, of detachment or hostility uh, from politics. So a real a real sense that politics is this antagonistic um, force. Uh, you know, it, it takes various forms, whether it's, you know, just, uh, you know, saying nasty things about politicians or uh, changing your vote all the time to keep throwing out the incumbents or, or even short-lived protests, you know, against uh, against the political class. The second form, I think, is is really important to understand. It's when politicos make their political project hinge on trying to leverage uh, some advantage out of that that anti-political feeling out there. So you can think of, I mean, in a sense, Russell Brand is one of these people. Uh, in the end, he had a, like a short-lived pseudo-political career. I'm not trying to be too down on him or anything. Um, uh, but then you think about... Um, Donald Trump, clearly someone who has attacked the political class openly and used an anti-political edge in, in, in his arguments um, as, as part of trying to cohere his own political project. Similarly, on the left, the most famous example, I think, is Podemos in, in, um, in Spain, where um, the party is based on a, on a movement that had a very uh, strong anti-political edge, an actual social movement, the Quince M or Indignados movement. And Podemos used this kind of language against la casta, the caste or the political caste, which it's uh, kind of described as a mixture of financial and political elites who were against the people. And they made a populist pitch, but it was very anti-political populist pitch. Um, it wasn't primarily against bankers. It was primarily against this kind of political oligarchy that was tied to finance. Um, so Political projects also of the centre can be like this. In, in some senses, um, I think Nick Xenophon, whilst he's a bit of a boring technocrat, uses some anti-political kind of positioning and he's clearly very much in the centre of politics. So, and this is one of the least understood things about what we say because people say, well, what you're saying is anti-politics is inherently radical or inherently progressive. And mm. certainly type two is not. Type one is just the existing state of affairs under capitalism. And then type three is the only type of anti-politics that we think is inherently progressive, which you, is, um, yeah. Would you also include, like, I, I want to come back uh, um, after you talk about type three to the Podemos and how that's affected your thinking, but would you also include sure. include in this kind of political class, class using anti-politics the way that the, like every boring uh, writer in all Australian media complains about things being too ideological? Yeah, I think I think that's an aspect of it, um, but you know they they have ideological reasons often to be out making that argument. Yeah, about totally. Their um, so so I think the ideology really is like a it's a reflection of I mean people's dis dislike of ideology is a reflection of uh, mm. the fact that ideology really is, a, is is an expression of what the practical activity of those politicians is. And the more their practical activity has bears little relation to what's going on in society, the more ideological uh, uh, they can look at that, they can, that more the ideology can be something that people are hostile to. On the other hand, in, the, in, in a p previous periods where parties had 
significant social bases, actually that ideology that politics is something that could solve social problems was much more deeply felt inside the population, I think. So I, um, I don't want to overstate it. Uh, I think probably most ordinary voters have never been that ideological, um, but but there was a certain sense in which that ideology made sense because it re reflected a real tie between things that were happening in civil society and things that were happening in the political sphere. So that's why ideology is on the nose, I think, because clearly these politicians appear to have their own separate interests against the voters. And so the way they frame their, their, what they're doing, the way they provide uh, a rationalisation justification for what they're doing is ideology. That, that's kind of the definition of ideology, isn't it? People, like, people engage in social activity and then they have a whole bunch of ideas that, that you know, frame that and, sh and, sh and shape how they see that and therefore lead them to act in certain other ways. Mm. And, and the third definition? So the third type yeah. is, is um, what Marx and Engels called um, communism or uh, the real movement which abolishes the present state of things. Mm -hmm. And by that, uh, I think they mean uh, a, a mass coming together of individuals in a collective social struggle to transform social relations. And I guess that means the end of capitalism, but, uh, you know, that has to mean the end of a separate alienated state. And that state will fight tooth and nail to prevent that happening, to prevent its basis in society. Um, you know, being overrun by, you know, um, communist social relations. Look, I, without getting too prefigurative, how do you imagine anti-politics manifests itself in communism as a movement? Um, I, I, I don't, yeah, I don't want to be too prefigurative, but I think you just look when, when there have been serious social struggles across whole societies, it, it quickly raises questions about whether the state is an effective way to administer and govern that society. Um, so even the Quince M movement, the Indignados movement in Spain, I mean, its key slogan was uh, no nos representan, which means they don't represent us. Mm. So it meant the political class does not represent us. And I think you can, I think that's how it would express itself, but you can't make politics go away just by having that slogan. And then it's a question of will the social forces and the social organisation be able to uh, repel and overcome the attempts by the state and the political society around it to recontain what's going on in society and you know, bring things back under control. An interesting thing, one of the ways I'm trying to think about this is through maybe thinking about the about America in the 1960s and 1970s and thinking about how the civil rights movement in particular really in the early days appeals to the state and seeks for mm. political state change, like for the passage of civil rights acts, for the passage of, for, you know, official desegregation through the legal system, um, and, and, and these, these sorts of endeavors. But then towards the end of the 1960s, there's a real realization of the limitations of the state as a vehicle for mm. change, right? And that then it leads to attempts by activists to, in effect, kind of prefigure a new type of state, like in the Black Panthers, for instance, mm. who are giving free breakfast to kids, famously, but who are also establishing whole new superstructures, a whole new structures of like um of of care and support for people in in those communities. 
and the women's movement setting up, you know, centers all, all across America to allow for um, to allow for independent organization and whatnot. This is there's a movement away from the state and a real realization that the, that the state is something that is not where politics happens in an interesting way, like in the way that the left thinks about politics, you know, like it's actually more about society in a way. So I guess I'm like, when when I, I don't know, I'm just misusing the term politics, I suppose, but I hope I'm conveying some meaning there. Um, Yeah, I think uh, I I look at the civil rights movement as one of the most um, profound social movements of the 20th century. Mm. Um, And I think all social movements, because of that thing I said about the inescapability of the state being there and wanting to administer and manage what's going on in society, Mm. there is no way you can have a social movement that does not impact, that does not have to take up political questions. But Mm. certainly the civil rights movement had mass social force. I mean, it was a minority force Mm. in American society, but it was definitely a mass social force. Later what happens, I think, is once some of those uh, demands are met by the state uh, after that inspiring struggle. That what happens is that the, you start to see some people wanting to push past that because logically, actually, even if the state granted full formal equality, which the United States state is actually not that far from full formal formal legal equality for everyone, um, it's probably closer to it than the Australian state. At least it doesn't have race powers. Um, but you know, like that people then realise, well, actually our social conditions haven't suddenly miraculously transformed and they Mm. buck against those social conditions and the residues of the old racist structures. So, you know, racist police did not stop being racist overnight when there was desegregation of schools and, you know, formal equality before the law. Those Mm. those residues continue and so therefore um, I guess the social struggle becomes more prominent but sadly by the time... I mean, I, I think it reflects the weakness of those struggles, um, how quickly the state was able to smash the Black Panthers and um, mm. how, I, I've got to be really honest, I think like the the other social movements, the student movement, the women's movement, uh, uh, the gay and, les- gay and lesbian liberation movement and so on were relatively weak in the United States. They were not super powerful. They were not ter- They were not tied particularly to a greater social force that could have made more change. Mm. And I guess the other historical aspect too as well is, you know, whatever the limitations of those movements, the demands that they placed on on the state coupled with the struggles in the workplace combined to reduce the rate of profit and overburden the state with debt that precipitated the crisis that then led to the development of what we might call neoliberalism, which is a nice way for me to segue in that your theorisation of anti-politics has a historical element to it. So you're not saying that anti-politics always has functioned in the same way, but Mm. rather there's something about our historical moment now that anti-politics has come to the fore. You know, Trump is not Nixon and Mm. maybe wouldn't have been elected in in the 70s. What's the historical story to this? Okay, look, and I guess I have to um, here say how much I'm indebted how much I'm indebted to the work that uh, Elizabeth has done, um, particularly in periodising what's happened in Australia over a long period of time in her thesis, which is soon coming out as, as a book on Brill and then later Haymarket. Yeah, it's going, so, and it's going to be, um, that's going to be like, like her, the work on the record already important, but this book is just going to you know, help cut the, yeah. the feet under a bunch of assholes. 
Yes, I, th- <laughs> I think so. So, so I think, but also the fact that uh, Liz really took to trying to uh, grapple with what Gramsci talked about in terms of um, the relationships between political society and civil society. Um, and uh, whilst Liz and I probably don't uh, like, probably have diverged a little bit over time about that stuff. Like, I think, I think um, her work's pretty indispensable. So I just wanted to put that there. Really, so like, I just don't want to give people the impression that I, this is all coming out of my head because it's not. <laughs> um, so I think the periodization, uh, what her work forced really was for us to try to grapple with um, historically what's happened. I think the general, the general truth is that capitalist social relations produce this antagonism, permanent antagonism between the interests of the state and politics around her on the one hand and civil society on the other, apart from producing all the other antagonisms that we Marxists like to talk about. Um, and so that's a general thing throughout the history of capitalism, but you really do have a, a, a prolonged period where uh, the involvement of masses of people in civil society and organisations, self-organised organisations that were tied to um, the official political process in various ways into political parties means that there was a whole long period in which there was a material basis for people thinking that that social interests could be met through the state. I think in reality, social interests um, are met through the action of social forces by and large um, and that in the end social revolution is about social forces clashing and social contradictions um, coming to um, coming to a maturity and you know exploding rather than political maneuvers. But for a whole long period, it could appear that that because mass politics did exist, that um, politics was the sphere in which your social interests would be met, and so therefore there were, there was a basis for people having the idea that um, politics was more representative than it actually is. Um, and I think there's been a prolonged period, particularly since the decline of the post-World War II sort of um, state-based settlement in, you know, in the advanced capitalist countries. As that started to de- decline and the old um, social organisations of workers based on, industrial, on the industrial working class started to unravel in that post-war period, you have this real decline of the, of the, the left parties that were based on them. But in the United States, where trade unions were never a big thing, you can look at I mean, there's some excellent work being done by Theodore Scopkoll um, on uh, mass associations in American life, you know, all those crazy lodges of the moose and all that kind of stuff, with that politics was actually organised, politicians organised themselves to relate to these mass civil society organisations. And these organisations similarly have kind of uh, fragmented and fallen apart and uh, are an incredibly pale shadow of what they were even 50, 60 years ago, let alone 100 years ago. So all those social bases that politics could base itself on have sort of fallen apart over time, particularly in the post-World War II era. So um, so there's that historical element. You look at the decline of the social basis of the political system. Does this narrative fit in with the story people tell about neoliberalism? Uh, well, as, as, as Liz pointed out the other day on, in the discussion, um, Australian uh, anti-politics and the decline of the Australian party system starts um, in the probably the... 1960s, which is well before neoliberalism. Mm. So is that a no? And in fact, if you look at you look at most countries, this is the case. 
most most rich, rich countries that fragmentation of the political system precedes what people call neoliberalism. Uh, I guess I, I'm more skeptical of the concept of neoliberalism now than yeah, I was sure. before. Um, on the other hand, uh, no one tries to periodize neoliberalism to the early 1960s. And yet you look at the discussions in political science and amongst party leaders and activists, you know, in major parties at the time, there's this constant worry about, oh, we don't seem to have the base that we used to. What are we going to do about this? Things are becoming less reliable. And there's like a, an argument, I guess, 10 years before in the 50s when people are beginning to talk about like the end of ideology, the end of social conflict. Mm. So I don't know if they're, mm. they're, they're, talk, they're not talking about, say, the declining participation in organisations, but they're certainly saying that something is happening on the end side of the Second World War that was different from what was happening before it in terms of the conflict that was going on in society. Though I think they would then, yeah. be, they would then be proven wrong, including kind of like the left pessimists of this by the eruption of social struggles in the late 60s to 70s. And then the other interesting thing associated with that is that then the state and politics goes about recuperating those movements into itself in order to try to create a new base. Isn't that right? Like that's an attempt to buy, if we want to read it back to the 60s and say that this is when the political class starts falling apart, well, this is also the time when the Democratic Party in the US and the Labour Party in Australia really starts appealing to and bringing in what are somewhat condescendingly called special interest groups, right? Yes. So this is social movements of the 60s and 70s that then get bureaucratized, instrumentalized, and brought into the state in various ways. Um, and that, yeah. that that needs to be brought into the story as well, I guess. Yeah, I, I, I think that's right. I think, though, one thing we have to be, I, th I think, probably brutally honest about is that in places like Australia, those movements are extremely weak compared with, let's say, the, some of the workers' movements of the interwar period at least the early part before the Depression, that actually it's a much thinner and shallower social base that is being absorbed mm. into, into the political class. Um, I mean, the, the big, the big uh, alternative uh, story is, of course, the Accord in Australia, where you see a real absorption of the trade union bureaucracy uh, into, the, into the political class and the functioning of the state and so on. Um, but that is based on, I think, um, or an already existing period of... of impasse and defeat for organized workers so so there isn't sort of an independent focus inside the working class that could provide a challenge to that so yeah but then the unions pretty pretty quickly fall apart as, as liz's work shows um so clearly um things those bases just rapidly fall apart and you look at the unions here or in most places they're in a really bad state there is the labor party has no significant social base now, I think. So uh, there's a lot from this, and like I've got to say I'm generally kind of convinced by it. What's the implication then? So if, if we accept that theorisation of, of anti-politics, what does that mean for those of us that, you know, are pro-communism as the real movement? How does that impact mm. on what we think we can do? Because I think this is where the, the idea of anti-politics has unsettled people and produced such a hostile reaction. Yeah. Um, well, I, I think, um, I mean, uh, look, coming to these conclusions required uh, for me uh, understanding that 
most of the work I did as a political activist, first in a revolutionary Marxist group, and then you know, in the, in as a Marxist, you know, in the Greens. Um, actually, whilst I learned a lot in those circumstances, uh, neither of those uh, neither of those projects were capable of changing society. And being honest about uh, that, actually, you know, haven't made an impact. And that's difficult for people to, I mean, it was difficult for me to come to that because it requires, you know, having an honest accounting uh, that your grandiose beliefs about what you were achieving being a political activist were simply that, grandiose beliefs. Um, so people find that very, very difficult, particularly if they're continuing to, to act in an activist way in the political sphere because it is self-sustaining. Like, it is, it's a real sphere. It is part more widely of capitalist society, even if it's not part of civil society directly. Um, and people live their entire lives in that sphere and function by the logic of that sphere and, you know, make their decisions, you know, because of the logic of that sphere. And to then say, oh, well, actually that was, that was all kind of antisocial um, is a pretty big thing to come to. Um, I, I think the second thing is to then always be on the lookout for the possibility that there will be social eruptions because if Marx is correct that the contradictions of capitalism aren't soluble, the state can't make them go away, and those social contradictions will again produce, um, you know, not just reorganisation of of um, people in civil society and a working class or whatever you want to call it, but they will then produce reactions against against the alienated, fetishized. Uh, existence that people have, uh, experience that they have in in our society, and so then being clear that that's that's the force that we want to orient on, and sadly, um, I mean, if you, uh, I go back to the Spanish example because I I knew Spain before the Indignados movement, and seeing the sheer hostility of the left to this movement at first that most of the left was like, what do you mean we can't sell our newspapers in the squares? What do you mean we can't bring our placards? What do you mean we can't organise in the way that we usually do? Um, the people actually, I mean, you talk to a lot of left activists in Spain um, uh, and they talk about how, you know, immature or primitive the movement was because it didn't reach the high political level that the activists had. And they, their job was to bring it up to that high political level. Um, you know, I guess that high political level, which had delivered nothing socially for the previous 30 years. Um, and that's what this movement needed to do is to come up to that level. <laughs> so, so I think it, it also means um, it's not to say that there's, there's not work to be done about well, what is the way forward, but, but to look down on actual social movements because they're not as smart politically as us politicos, it, it's, a, it's a real problem. But I think people find that very confronting. Um, uh, the number of times you see real social struggles and, you know, the people on the left talk about how primitive the politics of the participants are. Um, so, and finally, is not to be confuse activism, um, small-scale activism with social movements. Um, you have to have a sober assessment of is something impacting uh, socially, is something capable of doing that. Now, Marx starts with the Silesian Weavers, which is a small movement in, in Prussia, but which causes a tremendous stir because it's like the first serious workers' revolt um, uh, you know, against, against terrible working conditions in, in Prussia at the time. 
but he sees in that the possibility of social change. But not all groups of activists doing activism is social change. Um, the refugee movement in Australia is full of really well-meaning people that have made no social change uh, in over 20 years of activism. Uh, that is not a social movement um, in the sense that Marx talks about a social movement or a social struggle. And I think being honest about that means that you're more likely to actually spot real social movements. <laughs> so, for example, I think uh, the, the very brief eruption against the lockout laws in Sydney represented a kind of a, a, a primitive, you know, in, relatively incoherent social movement against the New South Wales state and political class. Um, it was short-lived, it was highly limited, it fizzled out. I'm not trying to make any grand claims for it, but the amount of sniggering on the left about this about this movement, in fact, the amount of nanny statism amongst the, the left that, you know, who are these people thinking that you should be able to go out all night and drink? But actually here was a primal reaction by a collective of people, relatively small, against the state and against the political class. And I think, um, you know, seeing those things, not, not necessarily as an opportunity that, you're going to turn this into something else, but understanding that 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 can be the form of that that social struggle now takes. Um, yeah, so I don't have any great plan for action. Yeah. Um, I, I get asked for plans for action a lot, usually as part of well, if you don't have a plan for action, then I don't want to talk to you because we all have to have a plan for action. But if the plan for action involves political activists detached from society, carrying on with their own political shtick, it's not going to change society. Because this, you know, this reminds me in some ways, um, I guess, with some of the debates in the historic and as in early 20th century and then post-68 ultra-left as well, which pretty much put forward a, a similar problem. And I, I guess that was a kind of way of thinking about communism that I was quite influenced by a really long time. And the... I. I the problem was I think it always came to the point where it kind of um, often relied on the emergence of a pure subject, if that makes sense, that it, mm -hmm. there was a kind of, like, things that were going on right now were always seen as too recuperated, too mired in politics, too limited, and that there would be some kind of pure movement of the class, which I think is similar sometimes to how the social could be talked about, and that there was kind of no form of activity that um, pro-revolutionaries, which was the term that they used, could make to impact on that. So you had groups like the French group Exchange and Movement, I think the name translates into, where all you could do was basically journalism. You could report mm. and circulate experiences. And this, I'm not sure if you paid any attention to it, this kind of came ahead in a couple of years ago in a debate in the UK between groups that are, I think are really interesting, one group which is called Plan C and the other group called Angry Workers of the World. And Plan C were attempting in, I think even maybe before Corbyn, or just as Corbyn was arising, to work out some kind of political strategy where you could put forward demands, which they called directional demands, which would kind mm. of help catalyse a movement. And the Angry Workers of the World, they're very sympathetic, but said, no, you can't do that, you know, basically struggles have to emerge out of actual and they're very kind of you know, point of production kind of struggles then generalize across the class any attempt to do anything else is politics and it has no basis in these struggles and it's a waste of time um and so i guess i wonder like do you what do you see as kind um, do you see that like there's any kind of role for agency of 
committed, conscious anti-capitalists in the production of social movements? Yeah, I, I don't think committed anti-capitalists can produce social movements. Um, but but, but I, I guess uh, I'm not saying that, like, any role, if that makes sense. Rather than, I, uh, I, okay, look, I, I should talk favourably about Lenin, just to really throw everyone, I think. Um, so I, I finally read Lars Lee's book on, on what is to be done. And uh, I'm... Look, there's a whole debate around how he interprets what is to be done, but what he sets out really clearly um, for the first few hundred pages, because it's a monster, is is how the debates that Lenin was involved in were debates between different groups of anti-capitalists who were relating to an actually existing workers' movement that was highly impure. There's nothing more, I mean, that's why they were putting forward various arguments about, well, do you take on the autocracy or don't you? But the thing that comes out really clearly is there is a radical, genuine social struggle involving, in, in that case, in mainly industrial workers um, you know, in Russia in that particular period of time. And all these groups, all their arguments have to be understood as, well, we're the political formation trying to relate to that, to take that struggle forward, to smash you know, whether it's to smash the Tsarist state or um, win democracy or even eventually it becomes overthrow capitalist social relations in some way. And But I think the starting point has to be that the socialists don't produce those movements. The socialists um, try to uh, influence those movements and hopefully provide them some direction so that, that the politics of, you know, from above or from the state doesn't take things over again. So land, bread and peace, you know, 1917 is this kind of, uh, you know, there's this whole political struggle over the, um, the interim state after February 1917 and land, bread and peace represents uh, social demands, direct social demands um, for the population, which, you know, in a sense is an anti-political move by, by, by the Bolsheviks. They're, they're actually saying, well, there's all this interest about how you run this government and who's in charge of this government, but actually there's, there's no point of that unless you're saying, <coughs> excuse me, unless you're saying what are the real concrete social interests that need to be served by this struggle. So it turns it back to, uh, it turns it back to what do the peasants need um, what what does the population need in terms of food? They need an end to the war because millions are being slaughtered and so on. That actually takes it back to social demands. And I guess the flip side of that is all power to the Soviets because that's talking about the alternative form of social organisation that could deliver that. Mm. So there we go. My anti-political interpretation of Lenin. So, yeah, no, no, I, oh, think, I think that's <laughs> – sorry, John, you go because I think that's really oh. fascinating. But yeah. Go, John. Uh, where, the way that I see that is like um, – taking it to think about what's been happening in South Brisbane. We talked about South Brisbane at the very start of this. But basically, like, yeah. in a way, what, like, you know, we did an interview with, with Max um, and Natalie, both of them who were involved, really involved in this. And what they did was, you know, like, they would go around, they took their political leaflets, went around and spoke to people in West End in that area, and they found out, you know, that know what they were going out and they were trying to talk to people about what they weren't really interested in that. They were interested in housing. They were interested in housing. That was what was coming out of all of the discussions. So they decided, no, we'll actually follow what the people are saying here and we'll build, and we'll try to actually talk to what they're actually saying to us rather than try to change their minds to make them think about all, all these broader issues in different ways. But instead, just to say, 
this is what you're interested in. This is your social conditions, which, you know, they're not Lenin, but this is certainly what, you know, there's certainly maybe a similar sort of thinking process that's happening, a, 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 um, so I, a similar so I actually, type of articulation. I think it's actually the, I think it's actually the opposite. Um, mm. And I'll tell you why. Um, I, well, I think, first of all, what you describe is what decent Labor Party activists and Labor Party politicians have done for the last century, um, which is actually figure out what the real issues are that will get them elected um, and they can talk to and pontificate about. Uh, I don't want to be down on these. Uh, I presume these are Greens activists you're talking about, like yeah. Green yep. activists. But, but the missing thing, the thing that is present in early 20th century Russia and that is present in 1917 is a mass social movement that mm. comes out of yeah. social contradictions. There is no mass social movement or even even pint-sized social movement in South Brisbane. So therefore, politically, they have to relate to where things are at, not a class in movement or a population in movement. And that's that's the key thing, I think. Um, I'm, I'm not for pure movements. Um, I mean, I can't think of anything more yucky and impure than an anti-lockout <laughs> movement, right? And yet mm. I raise it as an example, right, that social movements are mm. always messy. But then the, the point I think Marx was trying to make is the contradictions of society lead a whole bunch of individuals, large numbers, to come together and act on their common interests and actually move on their common interests, directly act on their common interests. They may also make demands on the state or want to overthrow the state or want to change the personnel of the state or whatever. Um, all those things are true, like the civil rights movement. It's not just a mass of people in movement in their own direct social interests. It's also got all those political things. But the key thing, the key thing is the social. What we see now, I think, almost universally on the soft left and on the radical left is the idea that we can transform society through politics that is detached from society, except at that level that you describe. I mean, Corbynism is like that too. Yeah. A whole bunch of you know, it, it, but it's actually not about a social movement. It, I mean, there might be, you might want to call it a political movement, Corbynism. I mean, it's pretty small, but it does not have a fraction of the social weight of, of the conservative trade unions that backed the Labour Party up to the 1970s. Do, do you want to take this opportunity to kind of talk about how anti-politics leads you to interpret both the Corbyn phenomena and the Sanders phenomena? Ah, yeah, and then we might want to wrap up. We're we're on the hour mark at least. Probably well, over. Yes, and you've been you've been very nice, and you haven't tried to get me to defend Donald Trump. That's been really great. <laughs> <laughs> well, we can, can do that. We've had that. Well, I, I, I also <laughs> yeah. I also want to give you an opportunity to like um, perhaps like address some of the criticisms that Liz and you have received that you think were off base or that you know. You want to use our platform that reaches regularly six to seven hundred sure. people um, to do that. Well, this is a bigger audience than I usually have. <laughs> um, so, so which you know, it's usually like one or two people in a Facebook chat. Yeah. So, um, so look, I think the main thing, uh, the main criticism I, I, I want to address, I think, is this idea. It keeps coming up again and again that there's something inherently radical or revolutionary about anti-politics. Hopefully I've cleared that up to say that there are these different things um, and and that really the only one that is radical is the one that it, we would have said was radical anyway, which is communism, right? Um, 
So hopefully that's cleared that up. But I think it, uh, partly the criticism comes up because um, anti-politics leads you to stop being partisan for the left. It stops presuming automatically that the left must be trying to do something socially progressive because I think the evidence is more and more the left does something that might be defined as progressive within political circles, but if it's socially detached, it really has no force to make social progress happen. Can, so, can I just interrupt um, you there, Ted, because you've just <coughs> yeah. triggered my mind. I want to say something before. So someone who uses a completely different vocabulary than you, so that's Badu, like so what, yeah. what, what you call anti-politics, he probably calls politics, you know, and what you call politics, he probably calls depoliticization. But he has this line where he says that all revolutions are originally a revolution against the left because the left <coughs> attempts, attempts to represent in the political structures... And the struggles are breaking beyond that. So the first enemy is, you know, so like in the Paris Commune, you know, there are people, there's a left that has to be broken with. You know, in uh, mm. Germany, there's a left that has to be broken with at the end of the First World mm. War. Same, you know, same with the Bolsheviks. Same in May 68. It's the left that is the, mm. the real hostile enemy any revolutionary movement comes up against because, you know, the French Communist Party in 68 wants to pull things back into the state and the revolutionaries want to go another direction. And just you talking about that just jogged my, my memory about that. Yeah, point. it's really interesting. I think I think at one level in terms of social revolution, because I think there can be political revolutions that change the makeup of the state, even overthrow an entire state bureaucracy and political class and replace it with a new one. Um, those revolutions aren't necessarily, don't have to be, they can be run by the left. Um, but I think a social revolution, a revolution of the great mass of people, you know, the, the real movement, would undoubtedly have to come up against the left because the left has an interest in maintaining the political sphere around the state. Um, it's actually self-interested in preventing the end of that political sphere because the left's entire existence is tied up with that sphere, and that's m much more true than, let's say, it was in 1919 or 20 in Germany, where the Communist Party is actually deeply embedded inside a radical working-class movement, um, where that distinction isn't there. <coughs> Excuse me. Um, yeah, so, I, uh, you know, but, like, other than that, I'm not sure how much I agree with Badger. I've read a few of his things and... Um, uh, I'm not really sure I'm on the same page with him. Um, you wanted me to talk about Corbyn and Sanders? Yes. Okay. Um, look, uh, probably I, uh, I'll, I'll speak more on Sanders. Um, um, I, I have read a fair bit about Corbyn, and my analysis of Corbyn does rest a lot on what Piping Shrike has written, because Piping Shrike uh, takes an interest in UK politics. Um, Sanders, I think, is... Uh, Sanders' ability to do what he did, which was come close to stealing that primary race, um, really is a reflection of the crisis inside the Democratic Party. And none of us, including myself, even during that whole process, realised how deep that crisis was. And then when Trump won, it suddenly became obvious just how bad that crisis was. But I think Sanders represents much more the existing, uh, a split within the existing Democrat base between more sort of class-oriented populists versus um, the identity politics people. Now, the identity politics people, I don't want to claim that everyone with Democrats is ideologically an identity uh, politics type like we might understand amongst radical student groups or whatever, but I think the, the demographic arguments about slicing and dicing 
the electorate in favour of the Democrats has led to an identity politics cast there, really. And I think Hillary Clinton represented that far more than Bernie Sanders, who pushed against that. But that's a real problem for the Democrats because, the, the, as has now been proven, the identity politics um, slicing and dicing of the demographic groups isn't a surefire way for the Democrats to win presidential elections. We've now had that proven in reality. Um, and in fact, in some ways, the slicing and dicing of, you know, the population in California got Hillary uh, exactly z zero extra electoral college votes that she needed, despite millions of extra votes. So that was kind of a bit of a dead end in, in terms of how the American political system works. Um, so I think Sanders represented that. But I think Sanders, interestingly, is a real political insider. He's a maverick within the political class. Uh, he's always been very much inside elite political circles, even if he has stood as an independent and independent socialist and so on. So, so I think he represents much more like a, an, an internal thing inside the broader sort of political base of the Democrats, such as it is, um, to try to find a different solution. And he certainly inspired people well beyond that. There's no doubt about that because actually lots of traditional Democrat voters um, have probably been waiting for, for some more populism. Certainly people forget how much Obama um, in his especially in his first election, played played the um, sort of the anti-big business populist, despite the fact that afterwards, you know, he got Citibank to write the list of cabinet members for him. So um, people forget how much populism there was um, with Obama and uh, and therefore the switch of voters from Obama in some Rust Belt states to Trump, uh, such, such as we understand that that may have happened, probably reflects that um, in this latest election, Trump was a better populist than Hillary Clinton, who really is not a populist at all. Um, with, Cor with Corbyn, I think it's trickier. Um, I think it's a really interesting phenomenon. There's a really excellent book on Corbyn called The Candidate, which is just really takes you up to him winning the leadership of the Labor Party. Um, and I think what, what is clear from that book is that the trade union officialdom, which had been the key base of the Labor Party, had spent a long time under, even before Blair, but then under Blairism, um, sort of allowing um, the party, you know, the party um, political class to run things more, recognised its own declining influence and so on. But after the after the Miliband defeat, um, it's pretty clear that a, a lot of the left union leaders thought, well, you know, we keep compromising, um, you know, with the party leadership and the Blairites, and we keep losing elections. What, why don't we just like put? For, why don't we just back some candidate who's like all in with us? And of course, um, then suddenly Corbyn rises because also the Labor Party membership, I think, uh, are pretty are pretty sick, uh, and the people around the Labor Party are pretty sick of this kind of the direction of the Labor Party and, and how it really wasn't able to win elections. So I think you have this kind of, then you kind of get this weird um, uh, clash between uh, a candidate who is backed by the party activists and those around them um, versus, and, and a significant section of the trade union officialdom uh, versus uh, the, the political class of the party, the elected MPs. So you've kind of got a battle between the political activists and the political MPs, the ones who have been elected. And you see it in some of the weird debates that come out where the MPs say, I actually got voted in by real voters. I have a more serious base than you, Jeremy Corbyn, who's just been voted in by this layer of party members and activists and, you know, you know, $3 members or £3 members or whatever. Um, you can actually see that debate come out. But I think 
neither side really has a solution for the Labor Party in the longer term because neither side can actually genuinely expand its social base to, to what it used to be, which was literally millions of strong inside the, the British population of organised workers, organised in their workplace in an active way, able to resist, you know, the attempts by their bosses to do bad things and so on. So so I think, you know, that lack of social base means neither, none of these things is going to be a permanent solution. Certainly the Blairite solution is, is dead in the water. Um, and now there's like this, this kind of fight between and, but then, of course, Corbyn did unexpectedly well, and that's kind of because even though he's got a weak base, so do his opponents who are MPs. So it's really it's really a battle of the minnows as to who um, a clash of the minnows as to who who runs the party. Um, I don't know how it's going to play out. Like I can't see into the future. Corbyn's good results surprised me, but I, I don't think I expected um, the Conservatives to run such a terrible campaign. Um, but like, say, yeah. leaving leaving aside Corbyn himself as is it possible to understand the kind of growth of phenomena like momentum or people being mm. enthused by the campaign as some kind of confused expression of social conditions the kind of mm. thing that um we, we are talking about when we say that there's an emergence of social struggles even if it's not there yet is it possible to understand the, the popularity around these left populist candidates as some kind of expression of those social conditions? And so, these maybe so, is also kind of, sorry, there's also there's kind of emerging out of the student movement and the trade union movements of 2010, 2011, maybe as well sure. in particular. Um, I, I, th I think no. I think if you look at that student movement and, and that... Um, that brief period of bureaucratic mass strike, you look at how weak it was um, and you look at how little um, genuine spontaneous movement from below there was, you compare it with the Indignados movement in Spain, which comes after a bureaucratic mass strike that's actually quite popular against the um, Socialist Party's um, austerity measures, uh, but then the trade union officials make a deal with the Socialist Party, there's tremendous demoralisation amongst the activist left, and then when the first protest on uh, on fifteenth uh, of May happens, um, unexpectedly, many many more people come, and uh, the movement takes off on its own. There's no way that the activists who organised that movement actually were able to pull those people in. Something happened in society. There was a spark, sure, but actually, you can't explain. The, the efforts of existing left activists to explain a movement that rapidly grew to actively involving between six and eight million Spaniards. You look at what happened in 2011, 2010, 2011 in Britain, it's still very much controlled from above. Yes, there are some nice, exciting student demos, but to be honest, and occupations, but to be honest, they fizzle out pretty quickly. And so, yes, maybe it is that layer that has gotten involved, but that does not represent a social movement. And certainly now, there's even less social movement than then to say that what's happening today is a reflection of, you know, social struggles that are happening now is even more crazy. There are actually... I mean, no one can point to those social struggles. People talking momentum and so on about, well, we will, through politics, produce, we will become the social movement, but they haven't done it. In fact, they've become more timidly um, part of the official system the more successful they've become. I'm just being, like, really brutal about it because people can have all kinds of 
exciting views about because it, it is big. Like the Labor Party hasn't had uh, a, a resurgence of membership like that for a very, very, very long time. Um, and so from the point of view of a, a moribund left, this looks really exciting. But is it actually social struggle? And that's a concrete mm. question. And when you ask people about, well, point to the level of strikes, point to the level of, you know, mass protests beyond this, you know, political organisation, and people, they say, oh, no, but that's not important. Like it's expressing itself this way. But mm. I, th I think that that's constantly try trying to dodge the question. Mm. Yeah, that's Similarly, people say, Similarly, people say, and I kid you not, that there are thousands of armed militia members around the United States just waiting for the call from Trump, you know, and it, it, once he calls them, they'll be out on the streets taking over the country. There are serious people on the left who believe these kinds of things, and it's that inversion. They think that what happens in politics runs what happens in society, whereas the opposite is true. Mm. Uh, I, I, I'm not saying... Yeah, yeah. Sorry. Yeah, look, for, for me, it, I think it's more a question and I'd, like, I want to try to be relatively precise about this. I, I, you know, not seeing like, the, like a Corbyn project or a Sanders project as something that can overcome capitalism, but trying to locate somewhere the, the experiences that a people might be having in or on the fringes of it in a kind of unfolding dynamic that could lead to more, if that makes sense, that... Like, I, in the same way that I don't like the kind of socialist group response that, you know, every, you know, swallow is a, is a revolution, there's a kind mm. of, like, ultra-left pessimism that, you know, would still complain the day after the Soviets take power that everything's still recuperated. For me, there's got to be, like, um, some kind of complicated analysis where you can see something between going on between that point if that makes sense like i'm i'm not particularly interested in corbyn so much i'm more interested in like what are the conversations that people who are swept up in this are having and how are they attempting to understand what's going on around them because i think you know to go back to i think an earlier point in this conversation you were saying you know you've got to relate to the social and be kind of porous to those kind of developments i think people coming together um in these kind of left populist campaigns can begin to attempt that project, if that makes sense. You know. um, but can you show me a historical example where absent social struggle, uh, a political a political organisation and people getting together and having political chats yeah. um, led led to a social movement? No, 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 that's not what I'm saying. Like, I'm, I'm not saying that that will lead to the production of a social movement, but the kind... Well, but, where it even predicted it. Well... But but I'm just saying that these kind of struggle, these kind of developments that are going on in left populism by bringing people together, like change the horizon of what they think is is possible. So if there is some role for agency in relation to social movements, I see that as better than not hap happening. If that makes sense, because it's the breaking down people's atomization allowing them to have those political chats, maybe even to begin to critique the processes they're in and read articles on anti-politics in a way that if they hadn't been involved in that stuff, those levels of conversations mm -hmm. and therefore the possibility of the agency that could happen when social movements emerge sure. is reduced. I don't think so, that... Like, and at that level, and because I think everything is contradictory, you know, and the antagonisms in capitalist society express themselves in different ways everywhere 
like I don't think it's everything and I don't think it's nothing, if that makes sense. So would you say the same uh, that, that, uh, that Trump rallies um, represent the same thing? Yeah, that's a good point. No, I wouldn't, but probably because of my own biases. Why not? Well, probably because of my own that's biases. Right. But one thing that I one thing that I would say. That's right. But one thing that I would say is that, like, I think some of the work that magazines like Hard Crackers have done, interviewing people about why they voted Trump, is part of that process. If that makes sense. You know, the, sure, but, uh, that, but, you're, but you're once again saying here's an activity by left politicos mm. to look at, really, to look at, well, what's the problem over there, right? Mm. Actually, in some ways, you could make more of a case. No, because I, I that's, that, that's, not, that, that's not what hardcrackers are doing. They're not looking over there saying what's the problem well, there. I, they're, they're, what they attempt to do is to, set, to basically say that the desires that have driven people to, you know, the, the desires that the people they interview that um, manifest in a vote for Trump are totally legitimate and their attempt, you know, this is how people are attempting in the space that they're in to make sense of the world they're in and try to have some kind of control and autonomy over it. They they, they don't take like a pathological approach where it's like, look at these weirdos, what have they done? Sure. Do Mm. they take a positive approach? Um, No, I don't think so. Like, but would they? Do you the, think they would take a positive approach like you do to discussions amongst no, people no, around the South? No, I, been great. I, I think um, I don't. Look, I can't speak for people like Noel Ignatiev, but like considering like how critical they've been of like Black Lives Matter, Black Lives Matters, and <laughs> Antifa Good. and stuff like that, I don't imagine they would. Sure. Well, I think there's a role, but, but then you're describing something different. Because I asked you specifically because you talked about people coming together. Because I actually want to, I actually really want to drill down on this point because I think it helps bring out like one of the key kind of differences in thinking about this stuff. Um, and that is, and that is, if that conversation that people are having, which allegedly is raising their horizons, um, see a new horizon. Um, it's happening around, let's say, momentum or around the Sanders campaign, around the South Brisbane Greens. Why could you not equally say that for people around Trump? And surely the only, the only answer that you can give me is, well, because I'm a partisan of the left mm-hmm. and the left is where progressive stuff happens. Wouldn't, wouldn't a counter answer be that, of course, like, while these are all ideological, not all ideologies are mm-hmm. equal? Well, like you, you know, like, really like, uh, like, there'd be a bigger conversation about what is ideology and like what is communism as a movement's relationship to ideology. But it, I think there is actually a room to say, even if all ideologies are kind of at some level incorrect, that they're, um, I can't remember, if, I know you don't like Althusser, but I think his theorization, his summary of ideology is that was it, you know, the imaginary picture or relations that we live real life through, whatever it is exactly, is, is pretty spot on. So even if all ideologies fall in that, that doesn't mean that all ideologies are equal or since they're expressions of social conflicts or at least expressions of the antagonisms in capitalist society are all pointing the same way. Um, but but the key thing that I keep returning to is actual movement in society mm. and conversations and ideas are not actual movement. No, for sure. No, so, for example, so, so, for example, let's look at the – there's a website in America called Vox, which undoubtedly is coming your feed a gazillion times. And the weird thing about Vox is it's run by people who consider themselves to be Clintonite liberals. 
Um, I mean, Matty Iglesias, who writes for them, considers himself to be a left-wing neoliberal. Um, yet that site regularly carries stories that could have turned up in Socialist Worker in the past. Mm. So there's this kind of radical ideology there, but the practice of Vox, the practice of the people around Vox, is actually tremendously conservative, pro-political, pro-system. Uh, what's interesting is that lots of radical stuff is said by very mainstream figures now on the left, and, and and actually you can't judge what's going on socially by the radicalism of the ideology of, of certain politicos or journalists or writers and so on. You actually have to judge it by the actual social content of what is going on. And so therefore, people getting together, talking about really nice radical ideas, that's fine if you're just saying that's an interesting discussion to have, but it doesn't it doesn't reflect a change, a social movement or a, or a change in the social conditions unless you can demonstrate there's been a social movement or a change in the social conditions empirically. Mm. And therefore, and therefore, in some ways, I found Trump's, Trump's audiences more interesting. I don't think they're, I don't think they're, I think, you know, I think Trump's a reactionary, right? Um, but I think politicos generally are reactionaries in just in different ways and with different ideologies. Now you're going to have mm. to talk about why you find it more interesting. Like, I, I, like you you brought brought up twice, right? The desire to talk about Trump, and I, I know we're going long, <laughs> but uh, but I think like why do you what? think that? Like, I, I'd be interested in why you think um, that Trump's mm. audiences were more interesting, and how this fits in with an idea of anti politics. Sure. Well, the first thing is I think the Republican Party has had a much more prolonged crisis, internal crisis, which means that the control that the Republican establishment and the movement conservatives have over their voters and activists has waned much more than the Democrats' control, the Democrat establishment's control over its party. So first of all, there's a kind of a greater amorphousness to it. Secondly, I think it's the interesting way that Trump was able to win these people and really win a landslide victory in a, in a crowded primary on the basis of cutting across the usual ideological divides you're not supposed to cut across inside, inside the Republican Party. Very, very harsh on things like immigration and terrorism, but actually soft on a whole bunch of other things like um, health care, social security, and so on, uh, including on wars in the Middle East, you know, and, and quite publicly so. Um, of course, the left largely only reported the really nasty, you know, stuff about immigration and terrorism, but the reality is Trump was speaking to this Republican audience that's supposed to be the most cracked right-wing people in America and actually selling a really mixed ideological message, and they were lapping it up. So there's something more interesting going on there. Um, and I think the, the second thing is that just the size of his rallies compared with the uh, Democrats' rallies, it's pretty clear he must have actually gotten outside the usual GOP base um, more considerably than either Sanders or, or Clinton were able to do. Um, so at that level, it's more interesting. Do these people represent the revolutionary vanguard in the United States? Absolutely not. <laughs> I, I don't want to like create any such um, sense that that's what I'm arguing. But I think actually Trump cut across the old political lines of division more effectively, um, despite the fact, of course, he's incredibly vulgar and says lots of harsh stuff. So uh, I, I think in that sense, it was, a, it was a more acute picture of where political breakdown can lead and how an outsider can come and really shake things up. On the Democrat side, things were still much more controlled. In the end, they were able to crush Bernie Sanders. Um, you know, Clinton controlled the machine. 
um, it hit a whole bunch of problems that are now much more obvious. Um, but I think the audiences there were much more still inside the Democrat electorate and and uh, much more political audiences, I guess. I mean, mm. Bernie Sanders is not an anti-politician. It's true. We might need to call an end to this one, guys. Yeah. No, yeah, Ted, I think that's been really fantastic. Has there been anything that we haven't asked you about or you haven't had an opportunity to, to flesh out? Um, look, at, well, the stuff about populism might have to yeah. leave it for some other time. Certainly in the book, um, in the book I'm planning to really uh, seriously cover the debates about populism because I think populism has been part of an effort to say that this anti-political turn is a, it represents a real pathology, and not just a pathology at the level of politics, but a pathology in society. And that, people um, are bad. Well, there's a, mm. there's a lot of proposals for limiting democracy, yeah. and one yep. of the things, yeah, one of the things, like you can even see it in the in the debate around same-sex marriage yeah, the plebiscite, here. Right? This, this, mm. Yeah, this sense the sense that the the plebs should not be allowed. That really the political elites need to solve this problem, and the plebs must be kept out of it. And the danger of involving the plebs, um, and certainly that ramped up considerably after the Brexit vote happened. Mm. Um, there was a real like that stuff really only started to get pushed hard after the Brexit vote happened because I, I suspect a lot of those um, marriage equality advocates looked at Brexit and thought, "Oh my God, you can't trust the people." They come up with reactionary results. So let's go back to trying to find a way to do it, you know, in the halls of power. Mm. So I think that whole populism thing is, there's a whole bunch of layers to that. I mean, it's probably worth talking at length about populism sometime down the track when I've done more research. But Yeah, no, that'd be fantastic. <laughs> that's great. Well, Ted, um, thanks very much for coming on. I think that's been really, really fascinating. I've got to mm -hmm. say, like, I generally agree with that analysis. I think my point of divergence is still attempting to work out like what is the relationship um, between like what what is the small relationship or the small space of activity before social movements emerge without saying that I think left activists build social movements. Yeah, I think that's a good question for next time. Yeah, I'd like to thank you guys for having me on. Um, I once again want to thank um, Elizabeth Humphreys because um, so much of what I've said today has really been part of the collaborative project that we've had. Um, and I also wanted to thank again the mysterious anonymous blogger, The Piping Shrike, uh, who made this all possible in the first yeah. place for me. Fascinating blog. Very good. Yeah, all right. We'll link to it. All right. Thanks, Ted. Thanks, we'll, thanks for spending your time. You enjoy the thank rest you. of your night. Thank you. Thanks. Bye. Bye-bye.